I, uh, I, I don't like roller coasters. That was a little shift there. Um, I grew up, uh, I remember specifically in high school, the whole school got to go to Six Flags. So I grew up in outside Milwaukee and we would go down uh, to Illinois to Six Flags theme park. We get to go if you were in the physics class. And um, part of the, uh, the deal was that you got to go for physics because we like studied physics when we were there. They had a few assignments for us to do to learn about motion or uh, velocity, I don't know. It was a whole day we got to be at the theme park. And my friends were thrilled because they just opened some new rides, some new roller coasters, which were gonna blow my mind. Uh, and I was not thrilled. I thought, I, don't, I think it might be a waste of a day because I don't ride roller coasters. Um, I, 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 even as a kid, I don't remember that. Uh, liking those or crazy rides like that. Roller coasters specifically scared me. All I could think about was how all of the structure was going to collapse that one time I was on it, that you're going so fast, it's going to fly off. You're going to shoot through the air. Um, that somehow uh, the the technician who was running it, like, is just some kind of a high school kid who doesn't care, is on their phone, you know, and, and like, we're going to fly right by him and blow up. Um, all I could think of was all, all those parts and how uh, how bad they were. And I would try to convince friends, let's not go on the roller coasters. But when you go to a theme park, there's not a whole lot to do except kids rides. Um, I, and, I, and most of my life, I had lived that way. I had said no way. And, and all I had done is I had um, looked, watched YouTube videos of roller coaster crashes and people being stuck, which doesn't help. Right. All I could do is think about all the bad things and how it goes wrong and how they're not right and why would these things be created but something changed for me i i uh for me because i i was once at a theme park and other people were riding roller coasters and i walked with them in line and and chickened out at the last minute i got up to the roller coaster i mean all that like the 45 hour i waited in line and we got there and i thought no chance i'm not riding this thing i saw how fast it goes I couldn't do it. I chickened out and I stood. So they said, um, oh, you got to stand over here then. And I said, can I just wait for my friends so that they can, um, when they get off of it, you know, it takes a minute when they get off of it, I can walk with them. So I stood over on the sign. I stood actually by an, uh, an older guy who uh, was wearing like mechanics outfit. And I thought, who's this guy? You know, he must have chickened out too. And then I read his name tag and he actually was like a certified roller coaster technician. I thought, <laughs> That's a thing. There's no way it's a thing. I, so I asked him and I found out a whole lot in, in my couple minutes of staying there with him. I learned there's a whole like certified group of people in the world who are uh, trained to make sure these things are safe. And he explained to me that he was there because every single day he checks all of the roller coaster. He makes sure all of it is safe. There's sensors everywhere to make sure uh, things aren't falling apart. He makes sure the speed is right. The bearings were greased. Uh, the computer system that runs it is is working correctly. He was actually there to observe the the um, high school kids who were running it to make sure they were taking all the appropriate safety steps. And he does this every single day, every night when the park closes, he comes in with his crew and they make sure every part of the roller coaster is safe and every part of it uh, is going to run smooth. That people are going to have a great time on it and it's also going to be very safe. He said actually his uh, one of the perks of the job is that his kids and his grandkids get to come all they want. And he said they come all the time, just even for an hour, and they just ride a few times and they go home. Um, and I thought, oh, he's, he's willing to put his kids on this thing and his grandkids 
it kind of changed my perspective on roller coasters. I, I still don't like to ride on roller coasters. I think the, I have created new reasons to chicken out, but the idea that a roller coaster is going to fall apart and that no one takes care of it is, isn't true. At least the park I was at. And so understanding that there's a person taking care of it, that they're looking out for all the people and not just that it wouldn't fall apart, but that it would be used like fully to, for people to enjoy changed how I uh, thought about them. Uh, it changed my decision. It actually changed that I could trust him and trust this roller coaster. Uh, in fact, he trusted to his family and I thought that means a lot. And that, that's my hope today. As we move to see this last part of Job, I think that's what happens with Job. He's unsure of who God is. He's questioned a lot of, of who God is. Is God right? Is he true? Is he just? And, um, and God gives him an answer. He actually gets to stand with God and God uh, unpack who he is and all that he knows. And that, that in all things, he's checking the safety of it and knows what's right and also has created it for our enjoyment as well. And it changes Job. Job now will ride roller coasters if the analogy holds up. Um, and so we're gonna hop in there um, to Job. We've been going through the whole book of Job uh, for a few weeks here now, and this is our last uh, week just looking at Job. In the future, we're actually gonna look at some of the themes that have come up from Job about uh, what what is evil, why does evil exist? Uh, who is Satan? Uh, he's in this book and what's what's the deal with him? And, and even we're gonna look at how do you help friends who are suffering and what a time for that uh, to think, how do we help a friend who's suffering and how do we help a friend who we can't maybe sit next to and, and give a hug to, uh, but we can still, how do we care for people who are suffering? And I think it's something we'll be able to help all, each other with. So we're in Job, if you want to open a Bible, if you have a paper Bible, um, or if you're just reading along again, you can click that link um, that I put in the comments and, uh, um, yeah, and follow along. So just to catch us up to speed, we're going to start in Job 38 at the end of the book. Catch us up to speed. Job is an upright man. He's blameless. Satan comes to God and says, hey, I think this Job guy only follows you because of what you give him, because of the stuff. And uh, God says, no, he's... He's the best. He's not. And so Satan says, well, I'm going to take away his stuff and we'll see how he reacts. And he does. And Job responds with, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be God. Even if he takes things, he gives things. Bless his name. And then he, Satan says, I'm going to, I'm going to take his health. Oh, I'm going to pretty much make it, I mean, put him on his deathbed. And he makes him quite ill. God allows that. And again, Job um, blesses God. But um the weight, and we've talked about the fog of suffering, starts to weigh on him. And Job goes from, as he continues to suffer, trusting God to demanding of God. In fact, he takes God to court in a sense and says, uh, God, I, I don't know if you made a good judgment here. I don't know if you're a, a, a good and true judge. And that's kind of where we ended it last time. We've seen Job move in suffering, which I I do the same thing, right? We, we move from trusting, uh, especially as we have poor counsel around us, Job's friends, actually give him some foolish counsel. They say uh, things like uh, suffering always must have an easy answer. You're suffering because this thing happened. There's just a clear cut. There's not uh, tons of decisions and parts uh, and things and messiness in there. They say, you must be suffering because you did something bad. You must be suffering because God is not good. They also share, you'll be pain-free if you follow God. So they say, well, if you're actually following God, if you're blameless and upright, you'd never suffer. And we know that's not true. Um, 
but but they they start convincing Job of that. Then also they even can, are convincing one another that maybe God had made a mistake, or maybe that if you do bad things, you always get the same level of response and wrath from God. And we know that there are people doing wicked things that doesn't seem like any justice is coming to them, at least right now. And so there's all this messiness, this fog, where they're they're unsure, and Job moves from this trusting to distrusting as his has poor counsel around him. And then we see in Job 10, um, some of these statements that we see how he changes. In, in Job 10, 1 through 3, he says, I loathe my life, therefore I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out of bitterness of my soul. In verse 3, it says, do not, does it not please you to oppress me? He's talking to God. God, does it not please you to oppress me, to spur the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you like, you must like it that I'm suffering and you just smile. You love the schemes of the wicked. That's, that's a change in how he's thinking about who God is. And in uh, Job 19, he says, though I cry, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He's starting to think there's no justice. And who brings justice? God, God must not be bringing justice. And Job 31, as we continue, oh, that I have had someone to hear me. Where is God? He, he clearly doesn't hear me. I sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. He takes God to court and says, God, I, I'm taking, I want to hear from you. How is this right? How have you put me in this place? Are you there? Do you, do you know what's going on? Are you a petty, angry God who just wants to hurt people, wants to cause suffering? Do you just enjoy seeing people hurt? And God finally speaks. Job and his friends talk and talk and talk. And it gets, they go down different rapid trails. And they start believing all these false gospels of the good news of who God is. And God finally talks. And, I, and God actually talks in questions. He asks Job 73 questions which is an interesting way for him to respond. Actually, um, for in some cases, if someone were to go to a judge and say, I think you made a wrong call, the judge would then say, let's lay out all the facts of what actually is happening before we decide if this was a wrong call. And the judge will take time to lay out all those facts. And uh, I, in a way, God is doing this. He said, okay, let's go to court and I'll lay out all the facts and we'll see who is right. Here's what God doesn't do though. Before we get here, be, listen to this as we go through what God's response is. He never says, Job, I picked you because you're the most righteous person on earth. I picked you to bless you and to glorify myself. Job, you're my number one guy. I knew you could do this. I picked you to show Satan. He never does this. He never even says, I didn't do this. He never says, hey, Job, uh, this isn't my fault. Satan had this idea. Um, he wanted to get, he came to me and wanted to show that you really loved me and I'm so sorry. Um, but I had to show him that you were still faithful to me, that it was still about our relationship and that um, he doesn't, he doesn't defend himself in those ways at all. God does not give him ever give him what actually happened there. God just asks him a bunch of questions that point him to a very important truth that for me today and this week has been really, really helpful and really encouraging. And I think hopefully for all of us, it is. So Job 38, here's God's response to Job. Job finally stands before God, creator, judge of all things, the one who he is accused 
of mocking him in his suffering and smiling on the wicked. And in verse 38, one, he says, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? He looks at Job. Who's darkening my counsel with words without knowledge? What foolish words have been spoken here? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. That would be a scary moment if God says to you, brace yourself, I will question you. That alone might be enough for me to go, sorry, I was wrong. Um, but here we go. Lots of questions of God. And here's what he says. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Well, surely you know. You stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you, you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Let's just stop there at the first questions. God says, where were you when the earth was created? It's, it's a beautiful poetic explanation of, of even the seas. Who, where were you when, when the sea was decided where the seas would stop and go? Where were you when, when, when I said, this is where you can go, seas, and this is where you cannot go? And he continues, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of earth? Tell me if you know all of this. Of course he does. And he continues, can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons and lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do you report? Do they report to you? Do lightning bolts report to you, Joe? They don't, if you're wondering. Who endowed the heart with wisdom and gave understanding to the mind? He, he talks about creating the world and the things around us, and then he says, Who's the one who fills your heart with what your heart is, the heartness of your heart, and who gives understanding, who fills your mind with mindness? Before you even could think about this, someone had to create your mind and make you able to think. Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of heaven when the dust becomes hard? The clods of earth stick together. Hear that again. Who can tip over the water jars of heaven? when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together. When there's drought and the earth is hard because it's dry, who tips over the water jars? Imagine that these huge, the rains come down and give us nourishment. And he doesn't stop there. There's more. In Job 39, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? 
Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? Who's in charge of, uh, of birth, of new life? Not Job. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Do you give the horse its strength or close his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom, spread his wing towards the south? Does the eagle soar at the command and build his nest on high? His point, I would, oh, yeah, 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 I got it. I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Everything around me you make happen to the smallest detail. I don't even know how you make a horse and make it strong and make it, I don't even know what that means to make that. So God pauses here and gives Job a quick chance to answer. God says in Job 40, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. God has laid this out ultimately giving us a, a glimpse of all that God does and who he is. And then he says, now answer me, Job. I've laid it out. After having some time to be reminded of all that God has done, he says, answer him. And Job does. He says, appropriately, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. Good job, Job. Good answer. That's my, my, that's my response just reading this passage of, of, of Job. Just hearing God, if this was even out of the context of Job, if, if I just had a block of text that said, here's what God's saying to you today. Who, who created the mountain goats? Who who made them give birth? Do you know when the deer are going to give birth next? Do you know how that even works? Have you created the deer? I would say, oh, no, God, you're, oh, wow. He's unworthy. There's no, there's no discussion back and forth. Yeah, but God, this stuff happened to me. It, it has shaken Job out of whatever he was in, this fog of suffering he was in. And he's now in a place to say, I'm unworthy, I, I can't reply to you. And now God does take a second to explain and defend himself. Then God spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify myself? Are you the one who says I'm not just? I need to explain myself. Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like this? For a moment, God flexes. Do you understand who you're questioning? I think we should be careful here because we could think, well, God just flexes those big pipes and he says like, oh, Job, you better watch out. I'm so strong, right? I'm a God who's so strong, could do anything to you. This could sound a lot like the other gods all around Job. Those gods are scary and strong and they're gonna hurt us if we don't do what they say. They're bullies, right? We got to be careful because God actually will go on here to clarify that. Be careful that we don't worship God just because he's strong, because we're scared of his big, powerful God that might hurt us. No, he's so much more than that. He's powerful, but he's purposeful. And he's right, and he's loving and compassionate, and he's just. He doesn't, he doesn't just 
flip out on us with his strong arm because he's upset that day. He's calculated and purposeful. And he goes on. He says, then adore yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Saying, that power I have is to humble people, not hurt people. Remember how Job thought he smiled on the wicked? Well, God clarifies that. This arm will crush the wicked where they stand. There will be justice. We'll bury them all in the dust together, shroud their faces in the grave. And we know uh, this, this moment, we get to know that there's a moment where God does this in Christ. Where he crushes the wicked. Satan is done. He buries death and sin in their graves. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, are you glorious and splendid? Do you clothe yourself in honor and majesty? Then unleash this fury that comes down and makes people humble, which means they turn away from themselves and turn to me. They no longer look at, they, they click the selfie button so it turns around and they're looking again at God and not themselves. Are you one who can save yourself? No. Because I am good and I am great. I am powerful, but I know what is right. So God, so Job does respond. He responds like I, I had a, um, uh, I was talking to a fourth grader recently who uh, uh, at school and, um, and he was, we were joking around and I said, hey, where's your teacher? He was wandering around the halls. Hey, what are you doing in the halls? And he's like, oh man, I'm the teacher today. My teacher said that I get to run the class. I said, oh, really? And he was like, no, fourth graders can't run classes. They, we don't know what we're doing. We got to have a teacher, man. Like he laughed, like, come on. That's a silly thing to say. Uh, it is a silly, that's pretty, actually pretty wise. That's, that's pretty cool. You should probably get back to class. But I, but I, how true is that? How often do we think all of us fourth graders are going to run the show? We can save ourselves. We forget. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, there's a teacher who knows what's going on, who might have to, to wrangle us with their strong arm, but also care for us and love us and show us compassion and teach us. And so, so Job has a moment where he, this all clicks, right? He's been humbled. And Job responds, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Is this good to hear? Job says, he's been humbled. And he says, I'm the one who said those silly things. Those foolish things, and I didn't understand. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer. My ears had heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Repent means to turn. So we're turned away from God, maybe towards ourselves, and then we turn back to God. So we realize we can't save ourselves. And then you know what happens? Job is restored. I think this is, wow. that could be the end of the story. That'd be an amazing story, right? Job is realizing the book of Job is actually the book of God. It's about God, not Job. And uh, he doesn't know he's, there's a book being written, right? A book of the Bible. But the book of Job, as in all books, right, are really about God. And he's realizing right then, oh, this isn't about me. 
and how I can save myself. If anything, it's about how I can't. And so he turns to God. And what happens then is he's restored. At the end here of Job, we hear in, in chapter 42, verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, it's interesting, he turns and repents. He turns back to God. He's humbled. He's in this position again that's the right position where he's in awe of God. He's worshiping God. He's trusting God. And it says that he prayed for his friends. Something about turning to God, loving God makes us love our neighbors. It's interesting. That always seems to happen. After he prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again, gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, Job before was the greatest in the East, had all the things, and now he's even greater. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. That's a lot of rings. He must be all Mr. Teed up. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. And he also had t seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jem Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karahapuk. This is wild. He lost his kids and now he has all these kids again. Nor in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. He not only had all of his stuff back and his success, he had his family back. And he had a, a lineage and a legacy that continued in his families. I love this last slide. And so he died old and full of years, full of life. So Job was given his life back when he turned to God. This is an important part to stop here. If we turn to God, he doesn't just give us a thousand donkeys. Uh, at least that's not happened to me. I don't know if I would have do with a thousand donkeys. Um, but I think this is a moment where we get to see a very physical thing that is pointing us to a very spiritual thing. That when we turn to God, when we realize who he is and we're humbled and we say, God, you are the one who makes... Uh, goats give birth and you're the one who told the seas where to go we realize uh, as we turn to him that he's good and he's the one who's provided life for us and saved us that we actually are given a life fuller than we ever had before when we turn our lives we're given a life we turn our lives to christ we're given a life in god more abundant than we could ever imagine it might not be stuff here but it's the stuff that actually really matters it's truly life we hear in scripture. It's life to the fullest is in God and not necessarily gathering stuff uh, like physical things. It's like a new version of what life really looks like. It's the true version of life. And so when we turn and repent, we also get life. We see this in Acts 3. It says, repent, then turn to God so that your sins have been wiped away. Our sins will be wiped, will be clean, forgiven, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What a word, huh? Refreshing. How how sweet is that? And that you and that He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Turn to God. He forgives your sins and refreshes your soul. And we have life in Him. What great news. And he, here's what I want us as we end here, I want us to think in this way. This story of Job is a story of self-preservation 
versus divine preservation. A story of us looking to ourselves, turning the, the selfie button on, having the fog of suffering around us and thinking, you know, I can do this. I've got to be able to do this. When I'm stuck in my home and, and reading uh, a lot of news all day and hearing a lot of stories all day and seeing a lot of graphs all day and trying to become like the best pandemic expert all day, I begin to look more and more at me and start believing we can actually figure this out, right? We, we can actually do just right. I can, we wear enough masks uh, and we can stay in our house enough and we can pray enough and then we'll do all these things and it will all be okay because we can preserve ourselves. And we really know in the end, right, that that isn't true. Who's the one who ultimately created the seas and decided what boundaries they would have and who created the mountains? Who's the one who gave your heart love and your mind knowledge? We turn and look to the divine preservation. The one who actually preserves us and saves us, right? It's the difference in self and God. It's the difference in an illusion and reality, a lie and a truth, selfishness and truly love. It's ultimately a difference in slavery and freedom, the freedom we have in turning to God and turning to Christ who has saved us. There's um. A letter here I want to read as, as we end our time. There was an emperor. Uh, th there's lots of these kind of pandemics or diseases that swept through areas uh, in all of human history, right? And in the mid 200s, uh, there was disease that, that swept through Rome uh, in that area, the Roman Empire. And they said at one point it would kill up to 5,000 Romans a day. And in that time, there's recorded from Christians and non-Christians the amount of Christians who actually would uh, even give their own lives, trying to help save and care for people. Even people who are, they knew were dying to give them respect. Even to share the gospel to say, hey, real true full life comes in Christ. And people, there are other people who are saying, I got to get away from these people who are sick. And there's even stories of them throwing them out into the roads, even before they had died, just get them out of their homes. People uh, pushing family out of their homes. If they weren't sick yet, none of that really helped. But that happened, and historically, as diseases came through, that happened. And, and the other thing that they saw happening as this, as this was going on was that the church was growing exponentially. More and more people were coming to know God and, and Christ. And Emperor Julian, in the year 362, he writes a letter to his high priest. Now, this he, he's not a Christian. He, um, they worship lots of gods. He writes a letter to his high priest and says these Christians uh, are growing. And I think we need to maybe think about their strategy and maybe adopt it in our own religion. So Emperor Julian says to his high priest in a letter he writes in 362, uh, the Christians have great benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and their pretended holiness of their lives. For it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, the Christians, support not only their own poor, but our poor as well. He sees the Christians now being free from themselves, believing in divine preservation and saying, I'm willing to go and help and care for those around me. It actually changes it. In fact, this is interesting. Rodney Starks writes a book on the rise of Christianity, the history of the church, especially the early church. And he says, for all that Julian urged his pagan priests. So all this he says is pagan priests should adopt the model of Christianity to match these Christian practices, there was little or no response. They couldn't do it because there was no doctrinal basis or traditional practices for them to build upon.
what Rodney Starks is saying is there is no foundation. There is no heart base motivation that changed for them. They did not repent and turn to God and worship him. And out of that came a love for those around them. They just were trying hard to love those around them and care for those around them. And without that, turning to God and, and changing, as we see Job, real full life doesn't happen. We can't just say, here's the five steps of how people care well for people and that their religion grows. So let's do those five steps. There's a change in who we are in our hearts and our minds. And what happens is we trust God when we trust that he is in control and that we turn to God, it produces this peace and joy and contentment in us. If we've learned nothing from the book of Job, we can be honest with God and through that can come peace and joy and contentment. Also, it produces love and service between us and others. As we turn to God, we're freed from ourselves and just trying to trying to save ourselves and preserve ourselves. And all of a sudden, God in, in the, in the, has the job of preserving us and we're now free to care for others. And, and lastly, and really most importantly, it gives glory to the one who deserves glory, which is God. And that actually cycles back through and gives us more joy and more peace because the one who deserves glory is getting glory. So a few questions I want us to ask as we wrap up here and before we uh, take communion, do we know that God is in control? Do you actually believe that? Do you believe he's good and purposeful? And he's taking care of a blessed life for you in Christ, a full life, maybe not absent of suffering, probably not but a full life. You can have a full life even in suffering, even in staying at home. <laughs> what is your response to being wrong? I think this brings to light when Job was wrong, presented with who God actually was and humbled. He, he had a good response, a right response. It's just turning to God. It, it, and just think where in your life is the story about you and not about a God? How are you reminded of all that God has done, that he did and does and will be doing? Just a reminder of that passage in Job. We could read that every morning. I, I should read Job 38 and 39 every morning and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the one who knows what's happening with mountain goats. I don't know. And that's really all of scripture. How important is it for us to get in the word, to know who God is? Because that would turn us and humble us and ultimately lead us to great peace enjoy and believing that divine preservation is true also just praying asking god being honest with him and again encourage you with gospel friends do you have people who are helping you do this encouraging you always always want to help people connect to that and we'd love to do that email me if you want to connect to some people even now through a zoom chat you can talk to some people and be encouraged and lastly who do you know that needs to know that god is good and purposeful especially right now how could your response to this pandemic show an even greater response that God had to our cursed world? The way you're responding today shows how much of your chips you pushed into your own self-preservation, how much you pushed into our divine preser preservation. Uh, I'm going to end with just something. Last night I was preparing this. I was on my computer and I got a text message from my wife. She was laying in bed with our eight-year-old. Um, and, uh, she was playing there like, as she, as our eight year old kind of falls asleep, she asks fun, funny questions. So sometimes I get these cool texts of like, here's the wild line of questions we got. This one I think is interesting. 
as literally as I was writing these uh, these notes up, she said, uh, here's the conversation Kelly had with their daughter. She said, hey, mom, is our president the president of the whole world? So Kelly says, oh, good, good question. Our president is the president of the United States, just our country. You know, every country has its own leader. She kind of goes on to explain that. It's just the president here. And she says, oh, good. So there's just one God of like everything in the whole world. And then she goes on to ask questions about like Disney characters. What a moment though, right? To fall asleep. And that's my prayer for us as we enter into a time of communion here in a moment that we would maybe be able to step back and see that bigger picture. Yeah, God is the God of the whole world and the whole universe. That changes things when we can go, oh, there's, there's one who's got all this in control. Uh, and I pray that we would sleep well tonight, remembering that as we drift to sleep, God is the God of this whole world. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to take a moment to take communion and remember what God has done through Christ. God, thank you for uh, the fact that you are the God of this whole world. I pray you'd humble us and turn us to you, that we would be people who would run to you and examine who you are, and that would cause us to stop and listen and be in awe, and that you'd bring great joy and life to us through what you've done in Christ, that we would turn to God, to Christ who has saved us on a cross, and that right now as we take communion, you would uh, remind us of the sacrifice he had so that we have life and that he has saved us. We pray this in your good name.